If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Hello, my name's Dave. I'm the editor of BBC History Magazine, and I'm joined today by the magazine's deputy editor, Sue. Hello. Now, this is the second part of our November podcast. You can still download the first part, which was a First World War special, which had interviews from Michael Palin, David Reynolds and Gary Sheffield. However, coming up in this issue... Once you start examining the West dealing with Stalin, the whole story of the war becomes a good deal more complicated than the Hollywood myth. That was Lawrence Rees writer of the new BBC Two history series World War Two Behind Closed Doors, who will be considering the Allies' relationship with Stalin during the war. The king isn't yet down and out, but he's lost the political initiative in this confrontation decisively. That was Munro Price, and the king he's referring to is Louis XVI of France. He'll be talking about the storming of the Bastille. It's like separating Siamese twins. And finally, that was Neil Oliver, presenter of the BBC's new History of Scotland, who will be explaining why you can't tell Scotland's story without touching on England's. Of course, all these subjects are explored in the current issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. You don't have to go to the shops to get it, though, as we've got a great subscription offer for you this month. Subscribe to BBC History magazine today and you'll save 25% on the shop price. All you need to do is call us on 0844 
or go online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine. Uh, this offer ends on the 31st of December 2008 uh, and I'll repeat those details a little later on. Right, let's get straight on with the interviews. Lawrence Rees is the Creative Director of History at the BBC. His latest project is showing on BBC Two right now. It's called World War Two Behind Closed Doors. He spoke to BBC History magazine's section editor, Rob Attar. How will your new book and TV series alter our understanding of the Second World War? Well, I hope that it alters our understanding in a, in a number of ways. First of all, obviously, I'm not arguing in the book in any sense that this wasn't fundamentally a moral war. I mean, any war against Nazism to try and defeat that ghastly ideology has to be at its root fundamentally moral. But it's a great deal more complicated than I think a lot of the almost Hollywood myth of the war might lead many people to believe. And by the Hollywood myth, what I mean is the sense that the war was primarily about D-Day, about the Battle of Britain and Dunkirk and so on. Isn't to say these weren't important events, but it's not the whole story. The fact is that for most of the war, the brunt of the war, most of the fighting took place in the east, took place in Soviet territory on the eastern front. And so therefore the West's dealings with Stalin were absolutely crucial in how the whole war was going to turn out. It's interesting, there are lots and lots of books, I think, on Roosevelt and Churchill, very few, or much fewer, that try and put Stalin within that mix. And that's because once you start examining the West dealing with Stalin, the whole story of the war becomes a good deal more complicated than the Hollywood myth and perhaps a good deal less edifying. In essence, what the Allied leaders, Churchill and Roosevelt, had to do was make a series of very hard, tough political decisions in dealing with Stalin. And and a number of people were immensely bruised by that. And I reveal that in the book and the series, particularly, of course, the Poles. What you talk about, I know, in the feature for the magazine that you've written is the fact that Poland was virtually surrendered to Soviet Union by Britain and America. Do you think that Britain and America they had much choice in that matter? Was it really forced on them, or could they have done something different? Well, human beings can always do something different. There's always a choice. The difficulty with counterfactual history, of course, is once you put the if in it, if they'd done this, if this, if this had happened, once you put the word if in, you, of course, are making a best guess. You can't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that Britain went to war in September 1939 over the question of the future of Poland. And at the end of the war, what had happened to Poland was that its boundaries had been shifted against the wish of the Polish government in exile, with the approval of Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt. And also, then in the post-war years, right up until the fall of communism, the people of Poland effectively had swapped living under one tyrant for living under another tyrant. So if the war, if we see the war as about this question of the future of Poland, then in that respect, we can't look on the war as this unbridled success that we do. But do you think that means that really, for Britain, the war wasn't so much about Poland? That was just the spark, almost, that meant we had to go to war against the Nazis? Absolutely, the spark was Poland. I mean, what the war was fundamentally about was preventing Nazism and the Nazis controlling Europe, and then subsequently, of course, preventing the Japanese controlling China and Southeast Asia. That's what eventually we see the war is about, and it's clear in that sense since Nazism was defeated, the war was absolutely won, the war was absolutely successful. The trouble is that what we tend to do, I think, a lot in the West, is to focus on the, on the war on the Western Front and omit 
the inconvenient bits of the war, which primarily relate to how Stalin moved and, and the Red Army moved into Eastern Europe, and then by the end of the 1940s were effectively in control of Eastern Europe. So it's significant, for example, that two of the presidents of the Baltic states wouldn't go in 2005 to celebrations in Moscow organized to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the end of the war, because they took the view that for the people of the Baltic states, the war didn't end in, in 1945, because, as I say, what happened to those people was that they swapped the rule of, of one tyrant effectively for that of another. And so freedom didn't come to these places until the early 1990s. So why do you think it is that this kind of story isn't really told much in Britain? I think it's not told in Britain for a number of reasons. It's fundamentally not told because I think it's more complicated than the effective myth that most people might want to believe. The Second World War has become, in many respects, I think, a mythic war, a war which was a simple story of good people fighting bad people. And I think that it gives a sense of cohesion to a society to believe in, in these sorts of ideals. Also, when I was growing up at school in the 70s and the history I was taught, there was a very practical reason why I wasn't really taught this as much as I should, and that was because of the Cold War. What happened was the whole alliance with Stalin and the whole history of what had gone on there became incredibly inconvenient because they were now perceived as the potential enemy. Another thing that you draw out in your book is how Stalin was dealing with Nazi Germany. Yes. Certainly in the early stages of the war. Did, Absolutely. Did the level of contact they have, did that surprise you when you were researching it? Yeah, this will come as a shock to lots of people. The Nazi-Soviet pact between 1939 and 1941 really is one of the most secret parts of the history as far as certainly as the Soviet Union was concerned after the war. That's because the Soviet Union was offering military help to Nazis. They organized and helped them with a military base, naval military base, in the far north of the Soviet Union, a place called Base North uh, on the coast north of Murmansk. And also, they actually even helped by providing icebreakers to an auxiliary cruiser ship disguised as a merchantman that sailed right across the top of the Soviet Union into the Pacific and sank Allied ships there. So this was direct military help that they were offering, something they denied at the time. And also, when you look at the details of how Stalin is negotiating with the Nazi foreign minister in 1939, what you see is actually, despite the massive ideological differences between the Soviet Union and the Nazis, actually they got on extremely well. And I think they got on extremely well because, essentially, what they lacked in ideology, they shared in approach. They shared in the belief that you could simply sweep over other countries, could control them simply by power, that they had absolutely no respect for freedom, for freedom of speech, for freedom of religion, for freedom of election, and so on. They actually had, in their very repressive nature, enormous amounts of, in common, which I think, and, and I say in the book, I think meant that when Stalin was dealing with Ribbentrop, he was actually able across the conference table to get on much better in many respects than he ever subsequently was with Churchill or Roosevelt. So does this side of the story, does that perhaps counteract the idea that for both sides the Nazi-Soviet pact was really a temporary expedient? I don't think that for many uh, Soviets they looked on it as a temporary expedient. There's conflicting evidence about Stalin. Um, he's alleged to have said at the Politburo meeting in the uh, summer of 1939 that this is, he was simply going to stand back and let Germany and the West destroy each other. But he's doing much more than that. He's actually 
in the direct meetings with Ribbentrop at one point, uh, and we only know this as papers that were discovered from the meeting in the 1990s, at one point in a meeting with Ribbentrop, he seems to be almost laying out the possibility of the Soviet Union coming to the aid of Germany if Germany gets into military trouble. So I don't think it's as cut and dried as the purely cynical uh, arrangement of convenience that subsequently many people look at it as. There's an element of hindsight with that, which is we all know how it ended. It ended with the Nazi invasion in June 1941. So therefore, oh, it was only ever destined to be a brief short-term measure. I'm not so sure. I think that if Hitler hadn't invaded, well, would um, Stalin have invaded in 1942 or 43? I, I, I don't know. As long as both sides thought they were getting something from the pact, I think it could have carried on for some time. So there seemed to be a lot of shifting allegiances in the build-up to the war. Absolutely. The only, you know, in this story, the proactive element is provided by Adolf Hitler. He is the one, right up really almost until the massive Soviet fight back and D-Day in the West. It's Hitler who is making the proactive decisions that other people are having to react to. Stalin doesn't want the Nazi-Soviet pact to end when it does. He's desperately trying in the spring of 1941 to appease the Nazis. He's doing everything he can to make this war not happen. And so when they actually do invade in June 1941, by sheer circumstance, he is forced into an alliance with Britain. And he's made the decision in the summer of 1939 when the British had had opened rather desultory discussions with him about an alliance. He'd made the decision back in 1939 that he preferred what the Nazis were offering. He turned down the British attempt at any form of deal then. So in 1941, he was forced into taking British help. This isn't something that he had actually sat down and decided he wanted to happen at all. I'd imagine the side story was kept quite quiet in the Soviet Union after the war. Absolutely. I vividly remember filming that after the war came down and talking to one Russian who was very interested in history and studied history at school. I said, this whole pact, the non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, that must have been an incredibly awkward piece of history to explain away at school when you were being taught it in the communist times, given what was subsequently to happen. And he said, no, no, no. He said, the Nazi-Soviet pact wasn't an awkward piece of history to explain away at school. That's because they never told me about it. The first time I ever learned there had been a pact wasn't until the early 1990s. So it was completely ignored. It was something that certainly this particular individual wasn't taught at all. And insofar as it was referred to, it was massively, massively downplayed along the lines of, well, there was no other expedient possible. What else could be done? This was not an alliance of any kind in any form. This was simply a neutrality pact and so on and so on and so on, which when you actually examine it, when you examine how Ribbentrop is treated in Moscow, you examine what's being said in the meetings, and crucially you examine all this evidence about military assistance, it's nonsensical to to hold that view. The fact is this was an alliance in all but name. They just didn't want to advertise the fact. And then after the war, it became incredibly inconvenient, and so was completely, as far as possible, either ignored or downplayed. And on the other side of the conflict, how likely could it have been that Britain would have sided with the Germans against Stalin rather than the other way around? 
Well, this was something that was proposed by a number of people, particularly resistance, some very high up uh, resistance groups in Germany towards the end of the war were trying to open uh, feelers for discussions along these lines. A man like George Earl, for example, whose son we interviewed for the, the book and the series, we know that he was a former governor uh, from Pennsylvania who was one of Roosevelt's special envoys to the Balkans. And actually in Istanbul, he was approached by members of one of these groups very close to a man called von Papen, who had been the former chancellor of Germany. And the idea proposed was that senior officials in the German army, senior officers, would overthrow Hitler, get rid of Hitler and the top Nazis, and then, this is in late 1943, would put at the disposal of the Western Allies, the German army, who would then turn from the West. Everybody would turn to support their colleagues fighting in the East, and both the Western powers and the Germans would then fight and defeat um, Stalin and prevent the Red Army entering Eastern Europe. There was actually, they did put forward this plan, and George Earl did write to the President Roosevelt about it and um, didn't get a reply. I mean, personally, I'm very glad he didn't get a reply because I think it was a totally bonkers notion from the first. It would have been incredibly dangerous for Europe had that happened because the German army at the end of such a war would have remained immensely powerful. Germany would never be occupied. Germany would still have been fundamentally militaristic and, of course, a power to reckon with in the future. And um, the Soviet Union would have felt immensely, totally betrayed thus potentially fueling yet another war. So I think we're very, very fortunate that that didn't happen. But it was at one time a possibility. Now, coming on to the TV series, you've interviewed quite a lot of people for the series who actually took part in the war. Were there any particular highlights that you can remember from that? Absolutely. I mean, the real big surprise to me was how, frankly, uh, a number of former members of the Soviet secret police felt able to talk to us. I don't think many people know, for example, what was going on in eastern Poland when the Nazis invaded in 1939. Most people know that the Second World War began because the Germans invaded western Poland in September 1939, but far fewer people realized what happened a few weeks later when the Red Army invaded Poland from the other side and essentially took half of Poland. So between 1939 and 41, the Soviets occupied that part of Poland and the level of atrocity that took place there, the deep the tortures, the terrible suffering, I think will really come as a shock to many people. And we've interviewed a number of people on the Soviet side who were involved in that, including one NKVD secret police officer who actually organized some of the deportations, the mass deportations of entire families out of eastern Poland to Soviet labor camps or to forced collective farms or, or so on, where many of them died. I mean, this is a horrendous human story. I think more people are aware of the kind of actions the Red Army was doing when it was coming into Germany into, into Hungary and behavior of some of the troops in the context of rapes and so on, I think is quite well known now. But the idea that in 1939-41, before all this, there were these appalling abuses going on, I think will come as something fresh. I certainly hadn't realized the extent of it and was, was shocked by a, a number of things that these people were saying. Considering the age of many of the people that you've been interviewing for this series, do you think this might be one of the last of this kind of TV series that we'll have? Yes, I do, very much so. I mean, I've been studying and, and making programmes and writing about the Nazis and Second World War for a very long time now. And it's clear to me that we've really, and certainly in terms of eyewitness testimony, I can't see, it's hard to see another major series being made which would use that. I think we've been very, very, very fortunate with this series to have the chance to do this, but I think that it's hard to see that's going to happen in the future. I mean, one of the reasons in this series that we're using um, 
much more dramatizations. We dramatized the meetings with Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt, and so on, is because, of course, it's the only way that we can actually show what was actually happening. We can't obviously interview people from those key meetings because they're long dead. World War Two Behind Closed Doors is on BBC Two now, and Lawrence Reese's book of the same name has just been published by BBC Books. Do look out for the December issue of BBC History magazine when we have a feature by Lawrence all about Churchill's decision to ally with Stalin in the Second World War. Lawrence Reese's book is just uh, one of a bucket load of books that have arrived in the BBC History magazine office this month, and I'm going to have a chat with Sue Wingrove, who's in charge of our book review section now, to find out some of the highlights. Sue, what books have we been looking at this month? Right, well, I've picked out a couple to talk about today. Uh, The first is called We Saw Spain Die by Paul Preston. Uh, This is a book about the foreign journalists who reported on the Spanish Civil War from 1936 to 1939. Preston looks at the aspirations of some of the correspondents who hoped to mobilise support for the besieged republic. He also recounts the challenges they faced. Uh, For example, the emerging Franco regime was not averse to imprisoning uh, foreign correspondents or even threatening to execute them um, if they didn't uh, fall into line. Um, Now, these journalists witnessed the horror of aerial bombardment um, and the horrors of modern warfare. And over the next few years, of course, such scenes would be familiar throughout Europe. Um, And indeed, some of the reporters there predicted um, this at the time. And why would I want to buy that? Okay, it's good because uh, Professor Preston is, of course, a recognised authority on the Spanish Civil War. And this is indeed a work of impressive scholarship. Um, But it's also accessible and it's inviting for the general reader. And your next choice is The Press Gang by Nicholas Rogers. Indeed, um, this is a book about naval impressment um, and its opponents in Georgian Britain. Now, impressment, of course, was the main method of recruitment for the Navy um, in this period. Um, And what it involved was seizing men um, aged from 18 to 55 from ports or even out at sea. Um, outgoing ships were exempt, but homecoming merchant ships were fair game, so their crews would often be set down before they reached port um, to stop them being snatched. Um, the merchant ships, for example, heading to the port at Bristol, uh, where we are today, um, would drop most of their men on the North Somerset coast um, so that they could take refuge in the nearby coal fields. Now, impressment was a violent action, um, and I'm looking here at a lovely picture by James Gilray um, of a of a press gang at work. Um, we've got the sort of evil-looking um, press ganger in his stripy trousers, um, and there's a whole bunch of women there having a go at him, trying to stop him taking their men away. There's a lovely picture of a beefy woman in a corset um, chucking a mop at him, and then dogs nipping at his ankles. Um, and as course for families, it would be a disastrous if the man was taken away, because it would mean they'd probably be living in poverty for for years on end. Indeed. So why would you particularly recommend this book? Well, it's good because the authors looked at a mass of new evidence from Admiralty Admiralty records um, and also contemporary newspapers and pamphlets. He looks at the phenomena from a social history point of view and enables it to be set within its wider social and political context. Okay, good. And now briefly, just uh, give us a few other highlights. Okay, well, we've done, uh, we've reviewed 12 12 books altogether in the November issue, including some big hitters such as Travelling Heroes by Robin Lane Fox and Masters and Commanders by Andrew Roberts. Um, I also wanted to mention the Third Reich at War trilogy by Richard Evans, um, which we have reviewed previously, but it's now come out in a box set of three volumes, and it's a a great achievement, the culmination of ten years um, of work. 
And you have a, a lighter choice there, I think. Indeed. The other books we've looked at this month include books on the Hellfire Clubs, uh, The Tudor Underworld, Medieval Queens, Duelling, George II's mistress, Henrietta Howard. Um, and also, if you'd like to know more about the Glorious Revolution of 1688, um, our expert this month is Edward Valence, who res- recommends some key classic books on the subject. Uh, you can find out more about all these books in this uh, November issue of BBC History magazine. Indeed, uh, an eclectic blend as ever. Now, before we go on to Munro Price and the French Revolution, we have a brief advertising message. BBC Audiobooks has just published a new CD called Alistair Cook's Letter from America, The Elections. Alistair Cook was a radio legend, entertaining millions of listeners for over 50 years in his weekly Letter from America. It was the longest-running one-man series in radio history. This is a special release to mark the American elections and to commemorate the centenary of Alistair Cook's birth on the 20th of November. This special selection of letters showcases Cook's unique talent for explaining the Americans to the British, focusing on five presidents and the American electoral process. Good evening. I suppose there will be general rejoicing that the newly wed Mr. and Mrs. Mayor Sugarman of Glencoe, Illinois, were able last Friday night to share their honeymoon in upstate New York with President Johnson, his accompanying regiment of aides, the White House Press Corps, and the Secret Service. I don't believe I've put that very well, but you must know the story. The bride and groom had come a thousand miles to the rolling Catskill Mountains in New York State, and they expected, as every couple should, to have their bridal suite uninvaded when they came to shake the rice out of their shoulder blades. They did not know that on his trip into New York, New England, and up into Canada to meet Prime Minister Lester Pearson, the President of the United States would decide to stay overnight at their very motel. Few people know ahead of time these days where the President will stay when he's on the hop and when he will arrive and I surely don't need to remind you of the sad necessity for this extra secrecy. Anyway, the Sugarmans had heard of the Catskills, a favourite and delectable landscape for lovers and golfers. They'd had their reservation confirmed. Then the White House moved in and made its discreet but all-embracing arrangements. It preempted, as it does, the rooms in any hotel that the President and his party mean to stay in. Imagine the scene in rural Illinois when Mr. Sugarman got a telegram from the hotel manager regretting that because of the visit of the presidential party, his honeymoon room had been cancelled. Mr. Sugarman is no trembling bachelor. He's 49, twice married, and he was very sore. He, in turn, sent a telegram to the President of the United States. And imagine that scene. The President, up to his eyes in cables from Vietnam, and the diplomatic pouch and aides trotting in with the latest information about the Canadian trip, and calls from businessmen and his economic advisers about the Federal Reserve tightening up credit, and an old friend, a senator, telling him he was going to have to have the nerve to ask for an increase in income taxes. Then somebody comes in with a special telegram from General Westmoreland in Saigon, no doubt. No, from Mayor Sugarman 
of Glencoe, Illinois. It read, My honeymoon reservation cancelled Friday for convenience of your party. Very disturbed. Please correct. This CD audiobook is on sale now from all good booksellers and is also available as a digital download. For more information on this title, visit our website www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash bbcshop.asp. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Now, let's hear from Munro Price. He's been talking to Rob Attar about the French Revolution. Why would you like to go back to Paris in 1789? Oh, because Paris in 1789 is where the French Revolution began, and there's quite a bit of debate among historians as to exactly what actual date the revolution did begin. But if you've got to choose one date, the 14th of July, 1789, when the Paris crowd dorms the Bastille and basically takes control of the capital as a revolutionary authority, is generally accepted as the start date of the French Revolution. The French Revolution is obviously my main specialism. And, you know, above all, it's one of the formative events in world history. So when you arrive back in Paris on that day, what kind of scene would you expect to await you? Absolute pandemonium. 
fears that the royal government, which is obviously west of Paris in Versailles, is about to dissolve the newly called Parliament of the States General sitting also in Versailles by military force and probably sending troops to control, to repress the Parisians who support the Estates General, to absolute chaos, rumours flying around, street corner agitators calling for all sorts of actions. How significant to the French Revolution was the fall of the Bastille? Crucial for two reasons. The first is purely practical, which is that the Bastille wasn't stormed as a symbol of royal despotism. It was really almost out of use as a state prison. It's very famously known that only seven prisoners, most of whom richly deserved to be in there, were liberated when the Bastille fell. The Bastille was, on the other hand, an ammunition dump, and it had large stores. It was the major gunpowder storehouse in Paris, the major gunpowder magazine in Paris. And the crowd, before they went to the Bastille, had previously visited the Invalides, um, the Invalids, the, the military hospital, which was the main weapons store in Paris. So they had looted thousands of muskets from the Invalides, and they were going to the Bastille to get gunpowder for these muskets. So the first thing is that the fall of the Bastille ensured that Paris was in the control of an armed crowd. And without that, they would have been much more defenseless than they actually were. Therefore, the capture of the ammunition in the Bastille means that a revolutionary authority backed by the crowd can take power in Paris. And the second point is a symbolic point that by the evening of the 14th of July, an authority other than the king's, a revolutionary authority backed by the people, is in charge of the capital city of France. And the king isn't yet down and out, certainly not, but he's lost the political initiative in this confrontation decisively, and he is never to regain it. Was the fall of the Bastille, was that a planned event? Again, that's very interesting, and it would be very interesting to talk to people in Paris, if one dared get near them, to find out just how much planning and organisation there was. There have always been conspiracy theories, mostly among right-wing French and royalist historians, that the king's cousin, the Duke of Orléans, was behind the revolt of Paris because he, he loathed his cousin, the king, and was very radical, and saw the discontent in Paris as a means of essentially deposing his cousin and taking the throne for himself. But those theories are fairly discredited, and there's not enough evidence to back them. So you know, that's the only master hand that's ever been discerned in the rising of Paris in July 1789. I think, again, none of us in Touchwood, fairly civilised, fairly peaceful Britain, have seen crowds at work in a revolutionary situation. And so how their motivation is formed, um, how their aims are set, whether they set the aims themselves or certain individuals give them what there's any coordination will be a very fascinating thing, I think, to I think to observe. They certainly knew, I think above all, they knew and this is what's also very interesting about revolution about the French Revolution and revolutionary situations generally, that a huge leap forward 
into creating a new political system and a new Jerusalem or whatever only seems to work at the beginning if it's presented to the board, the participants present it to themselves as a purely defensive move against something else. So I'm sure, and all the evidence we have, is that the Parisians saw what they were doing in purely defensive terms. They were defending their rights against a potential military attack. And therefore, for that, the key thing they wanted was arms and ammunition. So there must be a logic to it, then, even if it wasn't entirely planned, they must have realised the benefits. Oh, absolutely, yes. And in this crowd, (laughs) um, and in Paris generally, there are people with all sorts of different agendas. That's one thing. I mean, the crowd wants arms and ammunition to defend itself. But um, the Parisian middle classes who control the Parisian local government, the municipality, are terrified of what they see as lawlessness, total lawlessness in the street. And so their aim is a different one, which is to set up an authority in liberated Paris that will simply keep control of the place that's independent of the king, but will also keep the crowd under control. And actually, you know, this parallel move, what's going on at City Hall in the Hotel de Ville, they do, by the end of the 14th of July, they have achieved that because they actually have a functioning revolutionary municipal government working in the Hotel de Ville. How accurate would you say the view most people have today of the storming of the Bastille is? I would say pretty accurate, actually, because in terms of visual images, you have lots of often rather crude paintings or more sophisticated engravings done shortly afterwards on which our visual image of the storming of the Bastille is based. And um, therefore the crowds assaulting the Bastille, captured cannon, which were absolutely crucial in taking the Bastille, being trained on its gates. All of that is accurate. The other grisly event is the lynching and decapitation of the governor, Delaunay, after the surrender, and that's in many of contemporary and subsequent prints, and so that's accurate. But actually, quite recently, I just got out a DVD of that rather old 1950s British version of um, A Tale of Two Cities, um, with Turk Bogard and Sidney Carton. And in fact, it has a whole scene, crowd scene, of the storming of the Bastille, which is extremely accurate. So given that lots of people have seen that movie in England, I think they have a pretty accurate idea of what it was, yeah, what it was like. Do you think there have been any comparable moments in any other country's history, or is it really a one-off? Well, there are comparable moments, obviously. The Russian Revolution, for example, twice over in February and then in October 1917. Certainly in February, October was, I think, more of a coup d'etat really by the Bolsheviks. But February 1917, I think we've probably got crowds of the order, crowds in uh, St. Petersburg and Petrograd, of the order you'd have had in Paris in 1789. So that, I think the Russian Revolution would come quite close. But then you can argue really that all the forces that brought about the Russian Revolution were caused like um, socialism or democracy um, and a major mass movement, desire for liberty, were in the modern sense, were brought about in the first place by the French Revolution. One thing I'd also say, if I can, is that another interesting comparison is much more recently is 
1989 is what happened in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. That is a movement, a very similar crowd movement for all the things like liberty and democracy that the French Revolution was aiming at, a very similar movement, crowd movement, etc., but one that fails. And one wonders, actually, and, and thinking about you know, why the French Revolution, the storm of the Bastille, succeeded, and the revolutionaries got hold of Paris, whereas in 1989, exactly on the bicentenary of the French Revolution, we know which did actually count for something, I think, in the way the Chinese reformers and revolutionaries were thinking. And that in 1989, in contrast to 1789, I think the key thing there was that possibly learning from the French Revolution, the Chinese authorities, the Communist Party, were very careful to send in to repress the movement troops of whose loyalty they were absolutely sure, um, who came from the provinces above all, and had had no contact with the people of Beijing. And that calculation worked because the troops, as we know, very tragically did fire on the crowd and disperse it. In Paris, in 1789, on the other hand, many of the troops had been stationed in and around Paris for a long time, and several units actually mutinied, and basically the army in 1789 was not a reliable instrument in the hands of the authorities, whereas in Beijing in 1989 it was. You can read more from Munro Price in the November issue of the magazine, where he contributes to our regular Time Machine section. Now finally, I've been talking to Neil Oliver. The archaeologist, come TV presenter, is fronting the BBC's new History of Scotland this month, so I've been asking him about the difficulties in making national history for television. How hard is it to make a history of Scotland without an Anglo-centric bias? It seems very easy. Um, There isn't a there isn't really a, certainly not an Anglo-centric bias to it. It's a view in many ways of the whole history of Britain, uh, but seen from Scotland's point of view. Uh, I mean, if there's a, if there's a bias anywhere, uh, it's to ensure that it's, it's Britain as seen through the eyes of Scots. The way in which, uh, right from, right from the start, if you like, when, when a, a loose collection of tribes living in the, in the northern third of Britain uh, came together and built a kingdom which eventually had its own distinct culture, its own distinct identity. And that kingdom, once established, uh, was always a presence on the, the map of Britain. And it meant that rather than there just being one, one kingdom, perhaps an English kingdom, there was always... An, an opposing presence, which was Scotland. And the presence of that second kingdom, that bipolarity, sh- changed and shaped the destiny of Great Britain forever. Uh, and that, that significance of there being an independent, separate, distinct Scottish kingdom uh, is, a, is a strand that runs right through, well, will run right through the whole of the series. Uh, even once the, the the crowns are united and then the parliaments are united, the Scottish identity is never lost. It's never really even threatened. I think what will, what will hopefully become apparent to people is that it is a history of Britain seen from Scotland. And so as far as that goes, it is a history of Scotland. But 
every step of the way, we're acknowledging that Scotland has always shared these islands with other people and peoples. And that it's been impossible to tell the history of Scotland without seeing the way in which it is so utterly enmeshed with the history of England. You know, because the the peoples were so mixed and the, the, the families were intermarrying, uh, the people were, were living in, you know, English people were living in Scotland, Scotland people living in England, you know, down through the centuries. You know, it's, very, it's, it's impossible. It's like, it's like trying to, it's like separating Siamese twins. Tell me this, why, why other than it being a fascinating and, and great story, why, why now does Scotland need a, a new history? Well, I would say that in Britain at the moment, there's a renewed uh, vigour around the debate about the future of the Union that binds us all together as Great Britain. Mm. Uh, clearly the, the call for full independence for Scotland is loud again, uh, and it's being and that possible path for Scotland is being loudly debated once again. And it's, it's perhaps more relevant and more in the public mind now than it has been for a generation. Uh, you know, f- a, an, an overhaul of the Union almost seems inevitable. And the, the relationship between Scotland and England, the legal relationship, it looks likely to be redefined in some way. Mm. Whether or not that that ends up with full independence for Scotland obviously remains to be seen and would be a, would be a decision for the for the Scottish people to make. Mm. So, but we felt, we felt that it was timely, that there was so much debate about the future of Britain and the future of Scotland within Britain, that it was so relevant to look at, because obviously it's the, the issues that confront Britain today are the product of the past, and the tensions that exist between Scotland and England in the modern world, in the present day, are the product and the continuation of issues that reared their heads, you know, to some extent in the ancient past. And so it's important that people uh, on both sides of the border are going to make informed decisions about the future of the Union, that that they should have an up-to-date history, so that they see the the path that has led us to where we are today. How does Scotland's past inform where it's going? In Scotland, in particular, for a long time, rather than a history, we've had what could more accurately be described really as a mythology, a lot of Scots uh, who think they understand Scottish history, for a long time, the characters and the stories around those characters uh, had been coloured by some fanciful notions. Uh, writers like Sir Walter Scott uh, had helped to... They had made sure that people were paying attention to the past, but that past had become coloured uh, and a bit uh, mythical rather than factual. So it's important to have an accurate history to hand uh, to inform uh, to inform the future. Well, the past tells us that, the, the, that Britain was shaped to a huge extent by the existence of a separate kingdom, an independent Scotland. The fact that there were two crowns, two thrones on these islands made a huge difference. Rather than a monopoly by one power, there was always 
uh, a very strident, uh, independent opposition. So you had a bipolar island, which that that where you have that adversarial position, that shapes the destiny of Britain. And it's important, I think, that people remember that that was not inevitable. You know, the the creation, the advent of an independent, separate country, which was Scotland, was not inevitable. Uh, it, it could well have been the case that there would only have been one kingdom in Great Britain, one people. But that's not been the case. And I think it's, uh, I think, the, the future... Uh, will inevitably be shaped by the fact that you have not one distinct culture in Britain, but at least two. The Scottish culture uh, is a separate and distinct culture, and the fact that you have that separateness on the island uh, will, will have resonances and an impact long into the future. The History of Scotland is on BBC Scotland Now and also available on the BBC's iPlayer for those south of the border. You can sign up to our weekly TV and radio newsletter to find out transmission times of all the best history programming. And to do that, go to bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash sign up. It's free and I hope quite useful. Now, you can read more about all this in the November issue of the magazine, uh, which is on sale now. Um, This month's magazine also includes a special 32-page supplement which commemorates the 90th anniversary of the armistice that ended the First World War. Don't forget that you can subscribe to BBC History magazine and save 25% on the shop price. Just call us on 0844 844 0250 or go online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine. Uh, this offer ends on the 31st of December 2008. So that's it for this month. I do hope you've enjoyed listening and indeed that you'll join us for the first of our two December podcasts where we'll be talking about the Victorian Christmas, the travels of Herodotus and the American War of Independence. <laughs>